welcome to Viewpoints. Today, we welcome Tracy Ward to the show. Tracy began her career in public safety and patrol in Canada and was promoted through the ranks, finishing with a promotion under her belt in communications. Now, Tracy, I say that tongue in cheek as one who dedicated the majority of my career to communications. I do have an enormous respect for every aspect of public safety. So today we're going to talk about the different aspects of the positions Tracy held and the challenges she faced with biases both in opposition toward her and the ones she discovered she possessed on her journey. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, one of the things I like to ask people, Tracy, is did you ever think you would be doing what you're doing? So um, as you started as a constable, uh, and you are now a senior consultant. Uh, that is an amazing journey. Did you ever think you'd be doing that when you started? So tell us about that now and bring us uh, when you started your career. Yeah, no, I would have never imagined that I would have been able to um, kind of accomplish the things that I accomplished. I When I set out to become a police officer, you know, the only thing I really thought about was being a constable and promotion was never really in my um, view, but things happened and things changed and, and I started to develop more confidence and see the, the opportunities that were out there uh, for women who worked hard and who proved themselves. And uh, yeah, I started as a constable with the Edmonton Police Service in, in 1991, way back. And, um, of course I worked patrol. That was my first, uh, my first gig. That's where everybody starts. And I worked patrol on the South side of Edmonton and Edmonton is a city in Canada, about 1.3 million people. It is our capital city. So it's a large metropolitan city. And we had a large police service of about 1400, uh, people, mostly men, of course. And when I started, there was probably only about 30 women on the entire force. Wow. Are you talking sworn or um, like in communications or just? No, nope, just, just sworn members. Okay. There was probably 1,400 sworn members and 30 women. All right. Well, you encountered some challenges along your journey. So you started in patrol. Uh, what positions did you hold along the way? So along the way, um, I did a lot of undercover work because when I started, I was quite young and I, I didn't look like a police officer. So I did a lot of undercover work. I worked with Vice, uh, posing as a prostitute. Um, I did a lot of undercover prostitute operations and they were actually a lot of fun. I, I worked with a great group of guys um, who would be in the scan van monitoring while I was out on the street uh, doing my gig as a prostitute. I did a lot of undercover drug work, um, and I had the opportunity to work on an undercover homicide operation uh, for an extended amount of time, which was very exciting. I got to work with the FBI in Oregon and with the RCMP, and it was a it was a really large undercover operation. So that was really really exciting. Also very dangerous in hindsight. Um, I did some surveillance work. I worked on some project teams like the break and enter team. Um, and I worked in communications. Yes, I went to communications um, actually right after uh, the undercover opportunity that I had where I was working with homicide. 
I had some death threats and um, after that. So I went into communications as kind of a reprieve from that, uh, just to stay safe for a while and to kind of reset and ended up really enjoying call taking and dispatching, um, which was kind of shocking to me because I will fully admit that I went to that position not wanting to go to that position. I wanted to stay on the street, uh, but it probably wasn't the best thing because I was going through a big uh, court case and uh, really needed to kind of just focus on that. And so surprisingly, I ended up you know, really liking it and loving the team. And we were such an odd communication section because we had sworn police officers working in dispatch and call taking, but we were very slowly civilianizing. And to be honest, the civilianized model is, in my opinion, the way to go because it is a career. It shouldn't be a stopping point. And as technology has progressed and things have gotten so technologically advanced, I really don't think the two-year stopping point that a police officer does generally, because generally we go somewhere for two years and then we transfer. Uh, two years is just not enough to learn all the technology that is involved in a communications position. It is so complicated and it is such a different skill set than uh, you use as a police officer on the street that I just don't really believe in that model. So we're slowly, uh, EPS is still slowly changing that model from a sworn police officer civilian mix to eventually we'll get to the point where we're completely civilianized. So we have civilianized dispatchers and civilianized supervisors at this point, uh, but there, we still have the mix. So anyways, when I was there, it was mostly sworn police officers and I loved it. It was great. It was just a really different way to use my skill set. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that about uh, sworn personnel m migrating uh, out of dispatch. Most people, m my my uh, favorite thing to say to agencies who have sworn personnel in their communications is most people who want to be police officers don't want to sit under mm -hmm. a headset. You mm -hmm. know, they, they want to be police officers so they can be on patrol or, mm -hmm. you know, be detectives or you know, yeah. not answer and the phone. What tends to happen, and which was really the case in, in, in my situation, is that the walking wounded ends up going to communications, right? Right. Because for whatever reason, maybe they um, are having some disciplinary issues, maybe they've physically hurt themselves, but that is a place where they can go and still be operational, but not physically operational on the street where you might be dealing with public face-to-face or maybe there's a use of force uh, investigation, something like that. So that's all fine and dandy, but that means that the people that are there are likely not in the best headspace to be there. Right. Or they just plain and simple don't want to be there. Right. Um, so fortunately for me, I went there and I, and I loved it. It was great. I enjoyed it. And so then I worked there for a couple of years in a call taking dispatching, um, aspect and then I transferred back out and then I got promoted to the sergeant in charge of quality assurance and training in communications and at that time we were just implementing protocol based call taking so um, I worked on that project where we implemented priority dispatch EPD and it was a tough road to hoe because we had a lot of resistance to protocol based call taking um, but we eventually implemented and it was successful but I learned so much and I started to 
meet with other agencies to talk to them about their protocol based call taking. And then of course I was meeting different people that were involved in the implementation. So started to really expand and my mindset and meet other people from other agencies across the world and really get to know a lot more about communication sections and PSAPs all around the world. So started to really grow my knowledge uh, base from that point. And I worked in quality assurance and training, uh, doing call audits and um, uh, um, supervising other people that were doing call audits and worked a lot on policy and procedure and uh, disciplinary um, performance aspects of um, our staff as well. So I did that for about five years and then I transferred out and I went to something completely different uh, called the Heavy Users of Sewer Service Project. Yeah, so that project was completely different than anything I'd ever done, um, but I was really drawn to it. So I put my name in um, as a candidate and went through the process uh, and was selected as the sergeant in charge of that program. And that program was brand new. It had never been done before. And it was a multidisciplinary project where we were working with Alberta Health Services, uh, Royal Alexandra Hospital, um, many not-for-profit agencies and the Edmonton Police Service. And we were all working together to serve Edmonton's most vulnerable, um, our homeless population who were suffering with addictions and um, dealing with mental illness. And, and this group of people were so vulnerable that really the current programs that we had in place just weren't working for them because they weren't just addicted. They weren't just homeless. They just, they weren't just mentally ill. They had all of these issues that they were dealing with. And because of that, they just really didn't fit into the boxes that the other programs had. So they needed something, you know, kind of bigger, something more holistic, something brand new and innovative that would really help them get the services that they, that they needed because they were, they were just, you know, not work, the programs that we had in Edmonton weren't working. So it was something completely different that I had never done before. And it was absolutely the most rewarding position that I ever worked with in with Edmonton Police Service, because I got to know all these other agencies that I really had no knowledge of and met the, the most amazing people not only the people that I worked with, but the people that I was serving as well. Um, this vulnerable population that I will fully admit I had bias towards and until I got there. And I honestly, I get choked up every time I talk about this project because it, it changed me. It changed me. I went from someone who thought, why don't these people just change? Why don't they just decide to change? Why don't they, you know, clean up their act and get a job and do something about their lives. And I really, really thought in my narrow-minded capacity that that's all it took. And then I got to know them and I got to know their stories. And um, there was so, so much trauma in these people's lives that everything that they went through. Some, so many of the people that we worked with were First Nations and, um, so they had all the trauma, intergenerational trauma that they had experienced, and then the trauma in their own lives. Many of them 
had some kind of cognitive issue that they were dealing with as well, maybe um, FASD or brain injury. And then they had their addictions and they were homeless and the programs that we had weren't serving them. And it was absolutely mind blowing to me that how strong they were, that they were still surviving. Um, and they had managed to survive on the street for so many years when they were dealing with all of those issues. And I got to know, we, we were dealing mostly with 12 people that we had selected for the program and that had volunteer, voluntarily agreed to be part of the program. And so those 12 um, men and women, I got to know very well. And yeah, it changed me. It changed how I viewed the world and it changed how I viewed our homeless population and our vulnerable population. And I had a tremendous amount of respect for them. And I really just wanted to help them change and help them, you know, live the world the way they should with the respect that they should have. And um, we were very successful. Um, we changed their lives. They changed our lives. And it was, I, I just can't say enough about the program. It was, it was just so life-changing for me and changed my bias and just opened up my eyes to what people face every day and how my kind of white uh, middle income perspective was just so wrong <laughs> and so off. And, you know, it was totally unconscious bias that I had and a little bit of conscious bias when I would think, you know, why don't you change your life? But it was just, I just did not know. And, and really, for most of us, I don't think we can even comprehend the trauma that these people have experienced until you learn their story. And it will change your life because you will never look at things ever the same. Uh, one of your colleagues shared what an amazing job you did on that project with me. Uh, and I just want to, I want to say, you know, for our viewers, how many of us have actually looked at somebody who's, you know, panhandling and, you know, need money and like, well, there's jobs everywhere. Go work yeah. at McDonald's, yeah. right? With our own bias, just like you said, and I have been guilty of that as well. Uh, if you can, I don't know if you can or not. Can you share a story without names on um, somebody who, you know, when you first met him, you might have been thinking that and then how how the program changed them, what, what the program is. Mm -hmm. um, so basically what the program was is that all the different agencies would sit down at a case planning table twice a week and we would have all the information about our client, again, that they had voluntarily allowed us to, to have. And we would look at their criminal history, their medical history, their mental history, everything, and we would put a plan together about how we were going to, you know, first get them safe and get them off the street and into housing. And then how can we address their, their, you know, medical or their um, mental issues and try to help them, you know, physically and mentally to um, get them, you know, on track. Maybe that would be to address their substance abuse issues. So maybe that would be going to rehab uh, first. Of course, we have to detox them. But the problem with all of that were things that I didn't even think about. And for example, so someone agrees to go to rehab. How do they get there? 
well, normally they're put on a bus and they're supposed to take a bus to get to rehab. So you're by yourself, you're in a bus depot. So likely someone's going to offer you some drugs while you're there. Um, and you're fighting everything all the way there and you're all by yourself. You're likely not going to make it. So transportation was a huge issue that I just didn't even comprehend. Um, not even just the transportation to get to rehab, but how do they get to detox? Who takes them to detox? Um, who helps them with the stuff that they need to bring to detox? For example, you know, when you're going to rehab, you have to bring, you know, clean runners. Well, if you're homeless, you don't have clean runners. <laughs> you don't have um, that. What's a runner? Like, um, like Nikes, right? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Like clean shoes, gym shoes, so that you can be in the gymnasium with the other participants. Well, if you're homeless, you don't have that. And you don't even have your toiletries that you have to bring. So, you know, there's another barrier. Um, ID. They don't have ID. And you can't get ID unless you have ID. So if you've lost your birth certificate, how are you going to get a driver's license? How are you going to get government ID? And you need all of that if you're ever going to apply for a job or if you're ever going to do anything. So all these barriers that I didn't think of, like they can't even get um, any of the... Um, social money that our government will give you unless you have ID. And how do you get ID if you don't have ID? So there was all these little barriers that I just didn't even comprehend on the way. But one story I, I will share with you is um, a young man that we um, met who was in our program and he was, was going to go to rehab. So him and I were talking about all these things that he didn't have that he needed to have to go to rehab. And so I was running around trying to gather up all these things like these shoes that he needed and he needed all these toiletries and some clean clothes and trying to get all this stuff for him so that we could, we could take him to rehab. And, um, again, how was he going to get there? Well, I was going to break the rules and I was going to take him. Um, I was going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission uh, because I wanted him to get there successfully. And so he was on the phone with the rehabilitation place or the detox place. And he was answering all their questions. He was on my phone because again, you have to make a, a call to kind of pre-check in. But how do you do that if you're homeless and you don't have a home? So I had to find him and he was using my cell phone and he was talking to the people and they were asking him all these questions and, and they asked him who his emergency contact was. And he said, well, I don't have one. And they said, well, you have to have an emergency contact. And he goes, well, I don't have anybody at all. And they said, well, you can't come in unless you have an emergency contact. And he looks at me and I'm, I'm trying to hear what he's talking about and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and he goes, well, I guess it's, it's Sergeant Ward. And I said, what? And he goes, can you be my emergency contact? And oh. I said, well, of course. Yeah. Give him my number. And he goes, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Sergeant Tracy Ward is my emergency contact. And so he gives him my number and he gets off the phone and he goes, who would have ever thought a police officer would be my emergency contact? And, oh, wow. and I said, weird things, hey? <laughs> 
So then he ended up going um, to rehab and he successfully completed the program. And when he got out of the program, he reconnected with his ex-girlfriend and he had a child with her. And it was Christmas time and he wanted to go visit his child. And But they lived in a northern town that was quite far away from Edmonton. And... Of course, he was going to have to take the bus to get there. And we both knew that if he took the bus, he wouldn't make it, right? It's just too hard. So myself and another colleague, again, <laughs> broke the rules and agreed that we were going to drive him there. So we drive him there. It was like December 23rd. Um, met up with his, um, like the mother of his child. And we met in like a Denny's and we had breakfast with her and kind of like laid down our expectations and you know how vulnerable he was because we wanted him to still be successful and we didn't want him to lose his housing that he had obtained in Edmonton and he would lose it if he you know relapsed so we had this conversation with her and then we we left we left him and went back to Edmonton and the deal was her family was going to drive him back to Edmonton after Christmas. And so Christmas day rolls around and I'm at with my family and we're at our friend's house. We always went to our friends for Christmas day and we're in the middle of Christmas dinner and my phone rings and I answer the phone and it's him and him and his ex had had a fight and she had kicked him out and he was in the middle of nowhere and had to get back to Edmonton because he had nowhere to go. And so we talked about it and I said, okay, um, I can call and get you a bus ticket and we can get you back to Edmonton. And he said, okay. And we both knew, we both knew that if he got on that bus, he wasn't going to make it. And I'm like, I'll come get you. Just don't worry about it. I'll come get you. So I drove and got him on Christmas Day and brought him back. And we spent like two hours in the car talking about everything. And we both like cried about like the weirdness of the situation that here I was with him on Christmas Day. And the fact that we had this connection and he was just he was such a great kid and he had just been through so much. He'd been through the foster system and he of course had been sexually assaulted while he was in the foster system and ended up homeless at a very, very young age. Like we're talking eight years old oh. because he didn't trust the foster system and he had been wronged all through his life, right? Like with his own family and with the foster system and and never really had anybody that he could rely on. Um, although he did have some amazing connections within social services that, that he did trust and that he did love and that were amazing with him, but he wouldn't go back to a foster situation. And then he ended up turning into an adult on the street, but he had fetal alcohol syndrome, um, which was another amazing thing because even though he had, um, he was on the spectrum he presented so well because he had learned all the right things to say to people in authority. So the first few interactions I had with him, 
I was like, I thought he was functioning way up here and I thought he was just fine. And so I, I didn't understand until I got to know him better that all the responses he was giving me were all learned responses that he knew were the things I needed to hear, but he didn't really understand them. So he was functioning a lot lower than I actually thought he was. Um, but it took me a long time to figure that out because he's just fooled so many people along the way. And that was his defense mechanism, right? That's what he had learned to protect himself so that he didn't end up back in foster care or back wherever. And so, yeah, um, just got to know this kid and again, just had a tremendous amount of respect for him. And, and also just, you know, it broke my heart that we have no systems in place to help these types of situations. Like transportation is a huge thing that I never really considered, you know, was something that was lacking, but it is one of the biggest gaps or barriers to these people's success successfully finding a way off the street and then housing and housing you know we talk about housing all the time and there's all these supportive housing programs out there but they're still very restrictive so if you've been an alcoholic your whole life and now the only way you can have housing is to be clean and not drink that's almost an impossible situation so before I went into this program, I really didn't know what harm, harm reduction was. And then when I learned what harm reduction was, I wasn't really supportive of it until I was immersed in it and I could see how important it is. So programs where you have, you know, me measured alcohol, you, you give the tenants, um, you know, a certain amount of alcohol every day. So they stay at a functioning level. Um, but they are still functional, they're still operational, and, and they're able to keep their housing instead of expecting them to be completely clean because sometimes that's just an impossibility. And initially when I heard about programs like that, I was like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Why would we ever give an alcoholic alcohol? That's horrendous. And then I saw it working. And I am, because we worked with a, a couple different harm reduction programs and I saw how successful it could be. And I was just, again, totally turned my mind um, where I was so black and white prior to understanding how sometimes things just can't be the way I am or, you know, most of society is. We have to think of different innovative things and harm reduction is something that um, I just really became a, a proponent of and saw how beneficial it can be. We cannot put, impose our own beliefs or experiences on other people. We have to come up with innovative things to help them be successful, help them be safe so that they can live safe in a house that we are providing for people. And maybe eventually they will get out of that, but we have to kind of meet them on their ground. We can't impose our values on them. And that's, that was really the biggest thing I learned from this program and uh, started to see differently. So you met them where they were instead of expecting them to come up and meet where you wanted them to be. Yeah. 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 And, and we came up with different programs. We worked with different agencies to uh, create our own housing program. 
where we had the services that they needed within living in the program with them. So we had 24 seven support for the people that really needed it, living in the house with them. And um, again, it was very unique and it was really hard to get there. We had to write business cases and, and um, apply for grants, but we really needed to think outside of the box. And that's what we started to do collectively. And, and it wasn't by all means, it wasn't me. It was a whole group of 13 different agencies working together, coming up with new innovative ways to serve the people uh, that we were working with. And then again, the people that we were working with, those 12 people, you know, also having the ability to trust us, right? And to reach out to us and ask us when they needed something and share their experiences with us that, you know, were very private and very personal. And um, they opened their hearts to us as well and trusted us and would reach out to us if they needed something. So they, you know, the phone would ring and they would call us. And again, it was something very different for them because they had never trusted the police prior to that. And so hopefully we changed their perspective as well on how they felt about us. Has your program spread to any other cities uh, in the country? So I had the opportunity um, uh, with a few colleagues of mine to uh, present at different um, locations within Canada and the U.S. on our program. Um, but even though our program was unique, it's not really unique. Like you see these programs all over the world. I mean, we had some unique nuances to it, but we modeled our program initially off of a program in Prince Albert. Um, and we looked at programs all over the world. Um, and it was um, Superintendent David Veach, I believe, was kind of the person who came up with the idea for the program. And so he had researched all over the world and kind of put together some ideas about it. And then, you know, the rest of us started to work together as an agency, as different with different agencies to come up with our case plans and, and kind of our unique model. But like Denver Star and Cahoots, there's so many unique interesting programs out there um, that I've had the opportunity to talk to with each, you know, have their own different nuances to fit their unique communities or to meet their, um, you know, their funding model. We had the police involved in ours and often, you know, there is a huge demand to not have police involved in their programs because of the situation with George Floyd and the the political climate, there is a huge demand to have police not involved in anything involving mental health or social disorder. And I understand that, but I do think that there are times that the police can be very beneficial if you have the right people working in the program. Um, because let's face it, sometimes there is an element of risk, but also we have different things that we can utilize within the justice system to actually help people move along in their in their case plan so like it or not we would sometimes use the justice system as a way to catapult our clients into um, the next level of their case plan so if their plan was to get to rehab sometimes the only detox 
that was either available or that would work for them would be when they are in custody. So if someone had a number of warrants for their arrest and they had indicated us to us that they wanted to go to rehab, but we couldn't get them into detox because detox is always full, maybe we'd arrest them on their warrants and we would take them to remand and they would detox and remand. We would pick them up from remand and drive them to, to rehab. So maybe you don't think that's the right thing to do, um, but it worked for us many times and it helped move their case plan along. It got them sober if that was their goal and it got them housed because that was generally everyone's ultimate goal was to get off the street and, and get into housing because we live in Canada. It's freaking cold here. Um, <laughs> If I was homeless, the last place I would choose to be would be Canada. But of course, transportation is an issue. So if you are kind of, if you grow up in Edmonton, it's going to be really hard to get to California to be homeless there, right? Especially if you don't have any ID or any passport, which is generally an issue. So you are just a victim of your circumstances and you're going to have to kind of reside here. Wow. That sounds like I mean, what a long way from where you started to, to be part of a program like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening was I was with that project for uh, five years and I uh, had no plans of leaving it because I was really, really enjoying what I was doing. But then I got breast cancer. And um, so I was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to leave the project because it, it, is, a, it is an operational project. And I had to have surgery and um, go through that. And so I could no longer be in an operational position with the Edmonton Police Service. So I ended up um, going back to communications where I could work in a light duty capacity. And um, then I got promoted again into a staff sergeant position. And I was promoted into staff sergeant in charge of communications. So that's how I ended up back in communications. So um, kind of a weird situation because I don't think I would have ended up back there if I wouldn't have got cancer, but I was happy that I, that I did finish my career there. Um, and so I was in my portfolio, I had operations initially and then employee development and training and wellness as well. And so we had about 160 staff um, in communication section at that time. And we have a really unique uh, setup where we have a redundant site. So we have two operational sites that operate um, redundantly all the time. So we don't have a backup site per se because we have two sites that work constantly. So if one site goes down, our other site's already running. So it's a really unique uh, situation and it works really well. One's on the south side of the city and one's in our downtown core. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really great. So yeah, that's where I ended up. So then I retired from that position two years ago and ended up retiring a little bit earlier than I had expected. Um, for weird reasons again, Oh, we got a we got a new director, and um, my position was eliminated. So I could have either 
I could have went to a different area within the service as a staff sergeant. But I, you know, was at the 30 year point and I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And unfortunately, because of the timing of the situation, you know, promotions had already happened. So there weren't a lot of positions available at that particular time. And then at the same time that was all happening and I was considering my future, um, there was a buyout offer. And so I took the buyout offer and it was, like I said, a little bit earlier because my plan was to get a job and then retire. And so this kind of sped things up a little bit and I was, uh, you know, COVID had happened and so many changes had happened. So I was set on my heels a bit. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, but I thought, okay, I'm just going to take the chance. I'm going to take this buyout and I will find something hopefully. And during the course of my career, I had already always been a fitness instructor and uh, personal wellness and, and personal and health coaching was always something that I did on the side. So I always had that to fall back on. I'm a personal trainer and a fitness instructor and I have my own online wellness business. So I always had that kind of as a side gig. And so I always knew that I would have some income doing that. Um, and then I retired and then somebody that I had worked with, uh, throughout my career reached out to me and said, Hey, I heard you retired. Um, you know, I work for this company and they're looking for some additional consultants. You should put your name in. And of course, you know, I thought, well, I don't think I have the knowledge or the experience to work in that as a consultant. But then I thought about it and I thought, okay, you know, I think I do, I think I can do this. So I put my name in and yeah, so now I'm, I'm working for federal engineering as a senior consultant and we do PSAP studies, staffing studies. Um, we help them implement their own um, alternative response programs, but integrate it with dispatch, right? Because dispatch is always, not always, but often left out of these decision-making processes and they, the call always starts there. So dispatch should be involved from the very beginning, but is often kind of that, you know, the ugly stepchild that isn't involved. And so we're really trying to make sure that if they have alternative response programs, how can dispatch be involved from the very beginning uh, when we take the call? That's very cool. Um, you you mentioned a couple times uh, about um, in your career, you know, as a female, and I know you encountered some challenges or some may call them, uh, you encountered some biases against you during your professional career. Uh, what did you do in the face of those adverse conditions? And I ask you that because I feel like there are others who uh, may face similar or have faced similar challenges. Uh, and so um, if you could share what you experienced and then um, what suggestions you may have, because, uh, you know, when I look at you, you've, you've come out on the other side successful. So uh, can you, can you give some insight into that? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, let me preface it with the majority of my experiences were positive. Um, I had so many allies and so many supportive men and women 
um, within the Edmonton Police Service. I, I cannot stress enough how much support I felt over the years, all along, right from the beginning when I was hired, right from recruit class. I have um, many friends that I had through throughout recruit class that are still my friends now, 30, 33 years later. But yeah, amazing support and the absolute majority, overwhelming majority of men that I worked with were not um, biased, um, were not unsupportive. They were, you know, very supportive. And I always had allies along the way. But as in any career, there's going to be a couple bad apples that, you know, make your life a little more difficult. And I always, I always kind of joke with my, my husband, my husband's not a police officer, but I always joke with him. And I say, you know, you know, I hear about these women that, that, you know, are always getting hit on, you know, with their colleagues. And I said, nobody ever hit on me. And uh, we, we kind of giggle about it. And he says, well, it's, I think it's cause you, you put this, you know, aura off that like the don't F with me aura. And I'm like, okay, maybe, but we, it's kind of our running joke. We laugh about it. Um, but I did have a couple of kind of really negative experiences and one in particular, and I shared with you that I, I hesitated to share this because it's, yeah, I don't ever want to paint Edmonton in a bad light because like I said, overwhelming experience was super positive, but I know there are a lot of women who have experienced bullying or um, bias throughout their careers. And the reason I share this is because I just want other women to know that, yeah, we all have experienced some really negative things, but let's focus on those men and women that support us and that are positive and let's lean on them because they are our allies. And if I would have went through this incident today, I would have definitely um, went to my HR and reported it. And um, I would have want, wanted the person charged um, internally, of course, but disciplined internally for what he did. So situation was this was my supervisor and um, we, we had parade. So before... Our shift we would always have a parade where our supervisor would kind of get us up to speed on what was going on assign our units um, our radios our cars etc so everybody was in the room and I was the last person to come in the room and as I was walking behind him and I was the only female right so there's 15 guys in the room and I'm the only female which in itself can be a little bit intimidating, right? You're the only girl there ever. And that was at the beginning of my career. That was my experience all the time. I was always the only girl. So anyways, I'm walking behind him and he says, I smell tuna. And I was instantly so angry, so angry that I was almost crying. And I, of course, I didn't want to cry in front of anybody. So I didn't handle it well at all. I yelled at him and told him off and then ran out of the room, went to my car, sat there and tried to like think, okay, how can I handle this the right way? What can I do? What's the right way to do this? 
And I thought, okay, I'm going to be mature about this and I'm just going to call him up and I'm going to apologize for swearing at him because he is my supervisor. Um, but I'm going to explain to him, you know, how he crossed the line because let's face it, like over the years, there was lots of things said to me that I just let you know, roll off my back because it wasn't worth the battle. Like that wasn't the hill I wanted to die on. Lots of, and, and lots of times there's, you know, conversations or back and forth between people that, that is, that is fine and acceptable that I'm a willing participant in. And we're, we're, you know, going back and forth. This though was like, to me that crossed the line. So I called him up, we met for coffee and I said, you know, first of all, I want, I want to apologize for swearing at you in front of the, the squad. That was wrong. But, um, that, that was unacceptable. That was absolutely unacceptable. Um, you crossed the line, you humiliated me, you embarrassed me and, um, you know, don't ever do that again. And he put me on the desk for the next three months. So desk duty is generally the duty that is that the most junior person in the crew takes. I was not the most junior person in the crew. So the most junior person in the crew was now out on the street and I was riding the desk. And so it was never, it was never resolved. What ended up happening was he ended up getting transferred uh, because I wasn't the only person he was bullying. There were other men that he was bullying as well, who were my allies and who were very supportive. And like my crew was amazing <laughs> and they tried to help me through the situation. But at that point, and that was many, many years ago, my, his supervisor was aware of the situation. So I asked for a transfer and didn't get one. So I was kind of stuck where I was, but so what did I learn from this? I learned that there are amazing people that are going to support you along your career and help you through it. I also learned that as time has progressed and things have gotten way better, that that would not be accepted by supervisors. And I would absolutely have the confidence to, um, you know, report that incident and expect that he would be disciplined. And I know he would be because the culture has changed. The culture has changed. I see it all the time and that would never, never fly now. And I am so proud of um, the men and women that I worked with because I have seen the changes over the years and I've seen how progressive we are. And there are so many women um, that are in promoted ranks. Um, and that was really something I never thought would happen with me. Um, I was someone who job shared and I remember when I started job sharing, I was told if you job share, you will never get promoted. If you choose to job share, which is like choosing your family, right? So that's working half time with another person splitting a shift. I was told if you job share, you will never get promoted. And I did, I got promoted because the Edmonton police service is innovative and they're um, progressive. And they are very supportive of the women that they have in their ranks. And LBGTQ, very supportive. So yeah, I don't think that would happen today. And if it did happen, I think it would be addressed. You've mentioned that you've talked to people all over the world. Uh, do you feel like there are um, 
people who experience those kind of incidents that uh, won't say anything because they don't want the label of being that person, you know, who says something? Yeah, I do. I do feel that there are still people like that, um, people that are hesitant. And I think it, it really starts with the culture. I think if your culture is not supportive and if they don't walk the talk, you will still feel that way. And I, and I really believe that that's why I didn't do it at the time. I didn't feel like there was the ability to escalate that and that it would be dealt with because I didn't want to be labeled as that girl, uh, you know, that complainer. And, and it really was on my mind about, you know, I didn't want that label. Just, you know, move on, move on. Right. And I, and I think there is still that. And, I, and it really starts with management. Management has to put the message out there that they will not accept that. And then when, when incidents do happen, they have to support um, the, the complainant and do something about it. They can't, they can't just do lip service to it. You know, they have a policy. They actually have to do something about that policy if there, there are reports of, you know, bullying or harassment or anything like that. And I know many police services have been in the news um, and there has been a culture of harassment over the years. I know the RCMP has been in the news um, in Canada very frequently about this culture where people do not feel that they can report the issue or that anything will be done. And if nothing is done, nothing will ever change. But right. I have seen the changes in Edmonton and I think it's very positive. Uh, for our U.S. viewers, RCMP is Royal Canadian Mounted Patrol, right? Yeah, so that's our, our federal police service, um, whereas I worked for a municipal police service. Right. And they're not really mounted on horses anymore, are they? No, they still okay. have the musical ride, which is a, um, a, you know, on horses. But I don't know, maybe there's still a couple of places that have uh, horses out on patrol, but I don't, I can't, I can't think of any, right. you know, like New York does, right? The New York parks, don't they? I believe so. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I, I appreciate you sharing that story with us because I do believe there's, I, I believe it's probably still going on today. I think there are a fair amount of people who experience that kind of treatment because of their uh, gender, um, sexual orientation, uh, color of skin. And I think there's a fear in, in a certain amount of people that they can't say anything because they might be labeled as that person or that'll mm -hmm. be the end of their career if they say anything. And, um, you know, I hope that your story can give them some strength and hope that, you know, things are changing. Yeah, definitely. And I know it's a tough situation to be in because, and, and often the way we are raised um, can affect how we break that down and and so we're thinking to ourselves you know oh am i just being oversensitive right. um, am i making too big of a deal out of this and absolutely how we were raised and 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 as women how we are raised has has definitely affected how we perceive situations right I was raised to be a good girl and um, to, you know, not talk back and to be nice and 
all that has such an effect on you as you're going through life. And, and, you know, we see this with um, victims of crime, especially, you know, I've read so much information. I've been to so many conferences about sexual assault victims and how the perpetrators will test them. Right. And, and every ounce of their being is telling them, Oh, say no, tell them you don't want their help. Like, can I help you with these groceries up to your apartment? And their body is saying, and their mind is saying, no, tell them no. But then they're like, Oh, don't be a bitch. Be a nice girl. Let them right. help you. You're overreacting. And so we talk ourselves into not standing up for ourselves because of how we were raised and it can have, you know, disastrous consequences. Right. And I think that that whole aspect can affect us all throughout our career. You know, is that why I didn't complain initially when that happened? Was I, was I told that I was being oversensitive or was I thinking about that? Um, and yeah, I didn't want to be that girl. I didn't want to be the complainer. I didn't. I completely understand. Yeah. So. Um, well, thank you so much, Tracy, um, for your time with us today. Uh, do you have any any words of wisdom to add before we before we close? I just think it's so important to you know really create your allies within your um, agency, no matter where you work right? Your allies that you will support each other in your successes uh, to, to help raise each other up so that you can be the most successful that you can be. And that's not just women, it's men and women, because we have very competitive cultures. And when, when you have a competitive culture, often people get stepped on on their way up to the top. But if you develop those allies and you support each other, that's a way that both of you can be successful. And it doesn't have to just be two people, but yeah, just really help to raise each other up and, and help each other in those situations when you're at the conference table and you're trying to get your, your um, perspective out and maybe somebody keeps talking over you, then you have your ally there that can say, you know, oh, Tracy, I, I, you had an idea about that. Can you share that with us? You know, just those subtle ways to support each other um, so that we can kind of get our perspective out and have our voice heard where sometimes we just let people talk over us and then you just sit back and you don't say your perspective. But when you have that, you know, kind of buddy system that can help elevate each other. I find that, you know, really helps to work. That's a great tip. And then my only other thing is um, mental health support, peer support, have you know, have someone that you can talk to within your agency because we just internalizing all that trauma that we experience uh, can be detrimental. So if you can just talk to somebody about it and not be scared to reach out to those professional supports as well. And again, um, I think Edmonton is very innovative in, in some of our um, mental health supports that we have. We have amazing reintegration systems for our um, frontline constables and frontline patrol, but also we have a reintegration program for our communication section. So if someone is, has experienced something uh, very traumatic and they go off work for a while, we work with our professionals to slowly reintegrate them back into the floor. 
because sometimes just walking into the communication center can re-trigger you. So we work with our professionals to slowly reintegrate back onto the floor so that we can keep our people healthy, but keep them working as well. And I just can't say enough about those mental health supports. But again, uh, you know, walking the talk, not just having those things in policy, but really, really supporting the people that need them and not making um, mental health a stigma. So not being ashamed to say that you're struggling with something, but that has to come from the whole culture. We, we all have to say that it's okay to struggle with those situations. You can't just have it in policy. If your top top leaders aren't actually on board, it's not going to work. Right. Right. All right. Thank you so much. I, I wish you all the best um, until you really get to retire. <laughs> I have two kids in college. I don't think I ever will. <laughs> it might be a bit. <laughs> all right. Thank you for joining us, Tracy. Thank have you. a great day. You too. Uh-huh.